not having um, basketball to look forward to or school, really. I mean, I went to grad school, but you know, once you graduate, <laughs> there's only but so much graduating you can do before it's like, all right, it's the world and the world isn't measured by mm-hmm. performance and grades and turning things in on time. I mean, I guess a little bit, but you know what I mean? There's a different, different, um, it's a different ball game. Hello, and welcome to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. Each week, my guest and I share our vulnerable behind the scenes stories of giving ourselves permission to take off our masks, let go of expectations, and embrace our own path of freedom and authentic connection. I am your host, Bianca Hughes, a lover of authenticity. Hello and welcome back to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. It is a pleasure to have you listening to the podcast. If this is your first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode 62 and I have a guest on the podcast today. We're going to get into such a great and much needed conversation. My guest today is Kristen Feemster. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified personal trainer, and the founder of B3, based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. As an entrepreneur, she splits her time between her private practice, seeing individuals and couples, and working with clients through her coaching program, Be Well. Be Well is a wellness program created to help women develop a sustainable lifestyle that supports their physical and mental well-being. Fun fact, Kristen is a former college athlete and experienced the NCAA basketball tournament her junior year. Kristen also got sober from alcohol addiction at 26 years of age. And we're really going to get into this story and her journey of recovery and just learning so many truths and challenges that we experience and kind of what leads us to, what can lead us to addictions. Um, And so let's go ahead and get into the conversation. Hello, Kristen, and welcome to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. Hi, thank you, Bianca, for having me. It is a pleasure to have you here. Um, so I tell people all the time that I kind of like go through Instagram and stalk people <laughs> because that's how I find people's stories and how I find so many interesting um, people. So that's one way I found you, but like low key, I was looking for a therapist for somebody else in North Carolina. And that's how I, oh, also- wow. <laughs> <laughs> I needed gotcha. a, I needed a referral in Charlotte and, um, like I go on Instagram and that's how I found you. And then I just like stalked your whole page after all, I saw you doing all these amazing stuff. So I just want to give you props, um, for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. After all the stalking, here we are. I appreciate yes, it. Yes. 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 I just like to know what people are saying. So um, my favorite question I always like to ask all the guests on the show, what does authenticity mean to you? Authenticity to me means um, just a level of honesty and, you know, something that I'll, I'll kind of share, you know, as we talk, but like, being honest with yourself. And I think that um, for me and my journey, that was maybe the hardest part is to be authentic with me. Um, And so um, to me, it's about having that 
unrelenting honesty to acknowledge things within myself so that I can own them, work through them, show them off, whatever that might be, you know what I mean? Just, but first starting with being authentic with me and true to myself. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So tell me, you kind of, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, but have you always been authentic? No, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's been a journey. I think it, I think it ebbs and flows and man, we could get into all kinds of different areas of this as far as, you know, um, being a black woman and what it means to show up authentically in certain spaces or, you know, for me and my experience of perfectionism in general, you know, allowing myself to be imperfect, um, in all the many ways, but no, <laughs> that has not always been, um, my default setting, I would say. So what was your default setting? Like, what was your mask that, or if you can name a couple of masks, maybe perhaps you wore before you started to go into more authenticity? Um, I think that, so a little bit about me, I was a basketball player, um, up until, um, college, I played through, through my college career and then, um, stopped, you know, as most athletes do after that, but I played basketball from about age four or five until Mm. I was 21, 22. And so that was a large chunk of my time, my identity, my efforts, everything, you know, went into that, which was actually very helpful, um, to me, you know what I mean? Overall. But I think that the pressure and the, um, I had support, but you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Cause it's like mm-hmm. the better you get, the more you have to kind of keep at that same level. And so I would say like, notably for me, I think my confidence around, um, being a basketball player or just being good at something, being good at something to a point where people are noticing and not knowing how to handle that. I think that, um, a lot of times, you know, throughout my experience of basketball that I, my first mask was, I'm good. I'm, this isn't, but you know what I mean? That I'm, that I, yeah, I'm good at this. I'm, I'm killing it. When really I was afraid a lot of the time I was afraid to mess up, afraid to not be good enough. I come from a small town. So at the time, you know, there's just a lot of eyeballs on like what I was doing. It's not like it was like a larger area where there's so many different things going on. It was um, very much so focused on my um, team. You know, our, we had a good, a couple of um, good players at one time. And so I remember, yeah, wearing that mask to kind of protect the more insecure parts of myself. Um, and go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I think that's <laughs> like... Yeah. So important for people to know because the perception, of course, someone in the public eye, especially an athlete, and for them, you're like, oh my God, you're amazing from mm-hmm. from their standpoint. And you're like, oh my God, I'm terrified. Yeah, I'm terrified that I won't be, ama- you know what I mean? That whatever, whatever level you get to, you know, you know that there's a, a requirement that you take your, you know, investment up a notch, you know, so... Um, I started out, you know, playing league ball with, you know, most like most kids do. And then when I went to high school, I was at the end of my freshman year, moved up to varsity. Whoa, wait a minute now. Whoa, whoa, this is like a larger, you know, a larger stage. Um, And then, you know, getting a scholarship to college again, another another big stage Mm -hmm. to step on and all the while feeling like, you know, my 
my esteem and my worth was in the balance with that. And I think that's what makes the difference now is that I can do good things. I can have an identity that's even rooted in certain things. That's okay. But my esteem and my self-worth as a, as a woman is not solely dependent on how I show up in those different spaces. And so um, I would say that that type of issue showed up for me with basketball, but also in my career, you know, and in, in school as well. Mm. It's a mm. lot of pressure, a lot of performing mm-hmm. um, is what I'm hearing. Just a constant kind of like performance. It's almost as like, like you said, my worth is in how I perform. Um, right, right. Back in those days. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like with all of that, the performance from age four all the way up to, you know, your twenties, um, to your college, um, career. And then it stopped and correct me if I'm wrong, but is that where the, so for you, you know, where your story starts in terms of where the drinking, is that where it started to increase at that point or was it Right. I would say that I would definitely say that's where, um, you know, around my senior year, towards the end of my senior year, I think that's where. um, So a little backstory, my junior year of college, we made it to the March Madness NCAA tournament, Mm. huge deal in the basketball world. And it was great. Cloud nine, you know, amazing. Everybody's having fun. It's the best year ever. And then um, we had some significant changes my senior year. And so I, in, and we weren't as good. We didn't make it that far. We didn't win that many games. And so I would say that I think in hindsight, um, a little bit more, um, I had always been a drinker, partier, you know, within reason. I think my, um, the structure that basketball provided kind of contained some things that maybe otherwise would have been a little bit more, you know, throughout, you know, earlier college years. Um, but, um, I think in hindsight, I noticed where the switch went from being more of a social thing to more of a coping, a coping thing, um, to just what we talked about, relieve the pressure and to not think so much about, you know, what I was going to do next, as far as like, you know, not having, um, basketball to look forward to or school really I mean I went to grad school but you know once you graduate there's only but so much graduating you can do before it's like all right it's the world and the world isn't measured by Mm -hmm. performance and grades and turning things in on time I mean I guess a little bit but you know what I mean there's a different different um it's a different ball game um so yeah I think that that that's definitely when I started to fill in the gaps of my self-esteem and just generally my time um Mm. with with more drinking which of course you know is it's a progressive situation you know over the course of several years to where but in hindsight I'm like oh yeah I can clearly see you know how that progressed but um I think the end of basketball and just really having an identity crisis in that way um definitely was the catalyst for sure so what did it feel like for you because I always like to talk to my own clients and be like, well, what's the benefits? What were the benefits? Even though we know long-term and when you wake up and all these consequences, we know that. But in the moment, there's a benefit. What were those benefits for you, if any? 
Yeah, I think the benefit was, you know, more or less um, just being able to relax and let my hair down, have a little bit more fun, you know, me um, being and I think this is kind of in your lane too, as far as anxiety and perfectionism and just the high functioning aspect of that. It's really hard to step outside of that rigid um, mindset um, in a lot of ways. And so Mm -hmm. um, for me, even before it became something that was like, um, definitely I'm coping with depression right now, or I'm trying to cope with, you know, specifically like even before then, I think that what I enjoyed about alcohol the most was being able to just, you know, let, let all that go, not think so much about it, calm down, chill out, you know what I mean? And just have a good time and, um, remove the inner critic and remove the, the pressures that, I thought were coming from the outside, but were really coming from within as well. You know what I mean? To just kind of shut all of that off for a while and enjoy and enjoy life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it sounds, it feels weird to kind of talk about, I guess, what purpose it served, but I also think that it's important to know that because once you enter recovery, you have to learn how to do that organically and that you can't, you know, and so it's really important. It is good to kind of remember, you know, what the whole reason was for reaching for alcohol in the beginning. Um, and lonely loneliness. I think that, you know, dealing with loneliness in sobriety is different than what, I mean, you being lonely with something to to drink and I'm not trying to advocate or, you know, (laughs) advertise this, but it's a different kind of long. It's like, it can be fun. You know what I mean? Like, okay, well this, this is, it kind of masks the, the full experience of loneliness and being isolated, which I felt, um, in grad school, um, going from having such a team. Now, when you play basketball, I mean, it's not, it's not a solo sport. It's not like tennis Mm -hmm. or golf. You have a built-in friend group and support system and people who know what's going on with you and think I did that from age five all the way up to 22. And then now when you go, on, go into grad school at a school where you don't know anyone, which was the case for me, uh, who, who are you hanging with? Who are your friends? Mm. Like, how are you bridging that gap? You know? And so I think at that point, alcohol was a companion in that sort of way. Too. That's, so That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, because I heard a lot of people describe that because I've worked in um, with well I do work with clients with substance abuse but also worked in a hospital with substance abuse which I love working with the people with addiction Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're I could say we're we're an interesting bunch (laughs) very great personalities y'all are like full of life like it's great I love it um but um it was always like I'm losing a best friend or alcohol is my best friend or, mm-hmm. or the drug is my best friend. But I definitely heard that a lot more with the alcohol, that alcohol was like their best friend and it's like mm-hmm. losing a best friend. And it's even interesting as you're talking about that transition, which is huge. It's almost, it was like a grief, um, a loss, like not having basketball. And oh yeah. Yeah. And it reminded me of when people also, when they retire, cause you know, a retirement is another age where people start drinking a lot. Cause it's like, well, I did all this now, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And it kind of sounded like you had all of that also going on, like this kind of like retirement from basketball, this loss of basketball. So now you pick up the alcohol cause I need another friend. It's like a lot of grief, like, which I think, um, Oh Yeah. 
Definitely, definitely. And to frame it up that way, I think, yeah, absolutely um, a grieving process and something that I don't think, um, I think just, I don't think it's anyone's intentional responsibility or, or anyone's fault, but like, I think that a lot of athletes are not prepared for what that looks like and what that feels like. Um, I think that when you're, you know, when you're playing a sport um, and especially, I just want to say, I mean, sports at any, at any level are, are, are great, but there's something about the shift from high school to college, as far as what your investment is. Okay. So we're talking three hours a day of practice. And then your classes are, are, um, catered specifically for your basket. It's like a job. I mean, you, you, I don't know if you've <laughs> in, in the world today, they're now talking about paying college athletes and how much it, it actually is like a, a full-time job. And so I think that, um, for me that though I'd been playing basketball the whole time, I think just that entire shift in order to make space for it. And, and, you know, my, like I said, my classes and when and where I did everything was, was, um, shaped around it. Um, I think that college athletes aren't really prepared with, okay, so now what do I do, you know, when that is no longer needed and that structure is no longer there, you know, and, um, we don't really I don't remember any talks about grief, experiencing grief once a college, um, once your, your career is over with, you know, it's kind of just like that last buzzer goes off and it's like, well, you've done a great job. And you know what I mean? And there's, you know, there's some celebratory things, but as far as working with the, the sad grieving aspects of it, there really isn't anything. Sounds like a good niche. <laughs> it, it does it really does yeah yeah that's a part of um that's a part of you know what I'm getting into now and what my business b3 is for which I assume we'll talk about at some point um but is all the many ways that the transition can be a struggle for me personally um I've always enjoyed exercise by way of playing a lot. I've, I love being active, I guess mm -hmm. I, I should say. Mm -hmm. And so another thing transitioning into post-career is what does it even mean to exercise and be active anymore? It was always kind of structured in a way where like, this is what you're doing and this is why. And so I had a hard time finding like a, a, um, a balance between not overdoing it, not hurting myself, not pushing myself because, Hey, there's no game to prepare for it. Like you're just working out because you want to work out you know what I mean and I think again another thing that I think many athletes struggle with is how to you know um recalibrate all of that after yeah. after um a career is over you know so wow so mm -hmm. when did you start to feel like or realize that the alcohol how long did that take for you to be like uh I think this is becoming a problem and would you call yourself an alcoholic or would you say you had a drinking problem how would you kind of view that um so I would say um I'm gonna go ahead and like put some cushion on my when so I drank for uh 12 years total well from my first drink to my last drink was a 12 year span I would say that around age 21 was 12 to 12. Yeah. 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 That's when it was. Um, sorry. I'm like calculating. Uh, but I would say that for about five or six years, um, I would say that I was kind of on that more specific path to having 
um, at least drinking problem. And as far as the label of alcoholic, I'm, I'm kind of indifferent towards it. I went through, I started my recovery in AA. So of course that was a given with them, um, with that, with that, um, 12 step, um, route to call yourself an alcoholic. I don't necessarily have any qualms about it. Um, but I just, I don't, it's not a normal part of my language. When I talk about my drinking, I'll say, you know, I'm recovering from an alcohol addiction or, you know, something like that, but I don't typically use the, I'm an alcoholic phrase often. Um, I'm not offended. I know there's like some discrepancy on that. I wouldn't be offended, but it's just not a regular part of my language. So, um, so yeah, I think that some of the things that I noticed for me, um, again, things are so much different hindsight than they are in the moment. Cause I think the, the I went to grad school. Um, and so that gave me another two year um, extension of my little school bubble, mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my built-in identity bubble of being <laughs> a student, being a star student. Um, And so, but, you know, I definitely can see where my drinking increased during that time. Um, And the more you drink, you know, maybe in our culture, or at least in college, your tolerance being high is like bragging rights. Like, oh, Mm. you can hold your liquor or, oh, I can, you know, it was kind of like a a badge of honor. But now when I know about, you know, my tolerance increasing meant that my body increasingly needed more you know, and was becoming dependent on getting to getting that amount, you know? And so, um, I noticed that my tolerance increased. I noticed that my frequency of drinking almost immediately, you know, going into grad school was more just Mm. by sheer having more free time. Um, and, you know, and of course that progresses to drinking nightly. And then it's not just two drinks or three drinks, it's four or five because my tolerance is increasing. And, um, and so that kind of thing continued to progress, um, over the course of, like I said, four years to a point where the breaking point for me was, um, my good old perfectionist mask (laughs) that I would wear was like no longer covering for me, you know? So if you, a lot of things uh, for me in recovery, I had to like, almost update people that I had a drinking problem because they were like what when was this because again the persona is that I have it all together that I'm good my tolerance is high so you can't even really tell if I'm drinking or if I'm not and that sort of thing and so the breaking point really or like the the um awakening moment for me was like oh this is not I'm not able to like keep my thing like keep myself together and like this drinking problem is outgrowing me in that regard, you know, um, or out is running sheer ahead of me, you know, as far as being out of control. Yeah. Out of control. I'm getting out of control. And so I think that, you know, um, in the final days and months leading up to when I decided to stop, I was starting to notice more consequences, um, outside of just personal ones, personal consequences would be, hangovers, um, you know, your house not being as upkept, you know, as it would, would have normally been, um, you know, um, forgetting things, but those were all kind of like contained personal ones, you know, and when we talk, when I talk about other consequences, I was concerned for getting a DUI or what if I harm someone driving or what if, um, 
you know, just different things like that started to be more so on the table. None of that happened to me, thank goodness. But I was like, I could totally see how this just goes left from here. You know what I mean? And I didn't want that. I didn't want that for myself. So, yeah. So you went and got help. I started going to, I got sober in a 12 step program. Um, And so, yeah, so I never, I did not seek formal treatment during that time or or therapy of any, or of any kind. Um, I had been in therapy off and on. I was actually in therapy at one point while I was still drinking, Um, wasn't ready, can see kind of where there were some things there I wasn't ready. And then when I um, got sober, I went straight into 12 step and just really did the full 12 step life of, you know, regular meetings, um, sponsorship. Um, I do kind of laugh at how, you know, my, my um, innate desire to be a, you know, a student, like same thing with, <laughs> yep. same thing with the 12 step. Like I'm going to do, I'm, what do you need me to do? Like following directions and it. And, you know, I say that for- a lot to people mm-hmm. who are in recovery. I'll be like, mm, that perfectionism towards your recovery. Right. Which is a whole thing to work through. It definitely mm-hmm. is a whole thing to work through. Um, but at the time it, it did kind of give me that drive to throw, you know, to fully immerse myself in something that may have otherwise, you know, not worked out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it did, I, I completely surrounded myself with, um, with, um, recovery support, whether that be 12 step, I got back involved in my local church and they had a women in sobriety, a life group, got plugged into that. Um, This is where I started working on my relationship with exercise and my love for fitness and started working out with an accountability partner three days a week and just really tried to keep myself busy, but also get back to the things that kept me well or Mm -hmm. would keep me well that I, mm -hmm. So were you concerned and maybe still concerned that might come up about the stigmas associated with drinking um, just in general um, and things like that? And as a woman and then as a black woman. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember, um, I remember having a hard time going into um, recovery meetings. And I remember having a conversation with my sponsor about it um, fairly early on. And I was like, I just, I can't walk in. Like, I'm just so anxious about walking in. And she was, you know, a white woman. And so she tried to like talk me through it as best as she knew how, but she's like, you know, it's just, everybody's in there for the same reasons. And you know, it was all good advice, but it was missing the point of I was the only black person walking into those meetings. And I'm six foot at that point, I had an Afro. I mean, I'm there is no me just sliding in the back mm-hmm. and being able to have my own process with that. You know what I'm saying? And so I in hindsight, I can see where that was a part of it, like going into spaces and not seeing any other well, maybe a few black men, maybe you're, but mm-hmm. rarely, rarely, rarely a black woman, you know, and if, and if I did, you know how, I mean, addiction is, is tricky, right? So one day they're here, one day they're not. And so it was kind of hard to like, there wasn't enough of us to have enough of us who were sober long enough to actually yeah. form those relationships within that. And that's just the, the um, area that I live in, you know, where that was the case. I know that's not the case everywhere, 
but I definitely had some different challenges being being black in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Do you still face some stigmas or still do you still feel uncomfortable now or is it is it different for you now? No, now um in in general to um to answer your question, I was concerned with with stigmas um you know, maybe professionally um for sure, but I think that um but I also being in the field, I knew that there was some privacy around that for me. You know what I'm saying? I guess just from knowing, knowing where I work versus where I can go get help and kind of Mm -hmm. being able to create those like separations for myself and also knowing my rights is around some of that stuff was helpful. Um, I, my family, I come from um, a family of of my I'm not going to say a family of alcoholics but alcoholism runs in my family we'll say that and so um I kind of knew about it from there Mm -hmm. and you know I knew that I didn't want that to be where the route that I went you know what I mean um and so um though I had some concerns about it I knew that the concerns and the stigma and the whatever was only gonna weigh worse on me weigh heavier on me the drunker I stayed, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. just like the more, you know, the more you go down this path, the more consequences, it's like, there's no way out other than to just so get sober and do it that way. And so I was kind of willing to take that chance for, yeah. for the, for the hope of being done with it and no longer, I mean, not being done with it, but to, to stop the cycle, you know? Um, and so stigmas that my my care for the stigmas um around alcoholism um I don't know I guess because I'm in the mental health field I've just always seen it differently you yeah know? yeah I yeah there but there is like um I mean like you're saying then uh, 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 we might always not know but like you said I heard you say and I heard you talk about this about there not being a lot of black people in the mm-hmm. areas. and then mm-hmm. in particularly black women because I have been to some and sat in and you're right there are predominantly white people in there and predominantly white males um in there of course there are women groups and things like that but it's interesting when you're when I'm when I'm thinking about it when it comes to the alcohol it's not as as prevalent, I guess, especially for that. But then what about your decision to share? Because we work in a field, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, we're not meant to disclose and things like that. Although, you know, I have my own opinions on that, but mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have my own opinions on that, but you did, because if we go onto your Facebook, you know, group and, and people can look, they can find out that you're in recovery, which I don't personally feel like it's a bad thing, but just as a professional, a mental health mm-hmm. professional, not necessarily people who are in recovery, but perhaps other therapists who are not in recovery. But how was that? And, you know, kind of that decision made for you? Um, it was, it was a scary one. I'll say that, you know, so I've been sober six years now. And so this has been a long process. I think sometimes people, you know, they find my Instagram or my public platforms at whatever stage, you know, and they they think that it's been like that since day one. And it's like, no, this is year six of being <laughs> on the way to, uh, you know, to sharing more openly. And I think that um, what happened for me is, you know, very early on in my journey, um, 
um, when I was working on my, my walk with God and just like really staying connected spiritually or renewing myself in that way, I kind of had like this, me and God had like this little conversation about this being used for good. And mm. that like, there's, there's no way this is just gonna, that you're just going to get sober in private and then just never, you know what I mean? It was just kind of like this thing that I kind of al- already knew was on me to share. It was just about me getting comfortable with me, which is why I say like authenticity is about, it doesn't matter. Like you have to be comfortable with you, you know? Mm. And so I didn't want to do it from a performative standpoint and be like, Hey, look at me. I'm sober. Mm. Just to kind of gain some sort of whatever I wanted to do it because I had truly accepted and had fully embraced like this chapter in my life. And so for me, it was a slow, probably around year two or three, I think is when I started just sharing in smaller ways, you know, that I was sober instead of saying, I'm not drinking right now. I'd say I'm sober person, you know, just small ways that you start to just like own it, own it for yourself. And, um, I had some job transitions, so I never really had to announce myself or tell like my, the place Mm -hmm. that I got sober was not the place that I was working at at the time, but I started to, um, seek out employment at treatment centers, you know? And so that was a part of my interview was to say, Hey, my reason for being here, my, my reason that I'm led to this facility or, or this field is because I too have had a, a drinking problem and I'm a sober person, you know, and just want to immerse myself in helping other people. Um, and so it was a slow build. It was a slow build to kind of just now it's just like, it's such a miracle and it always has been, but it's just like, once I started to realize you just, this is like some sort of miracle that you're just like hiding from everybody. Like tell somebody what has happened, mm-hmm. tell somebody, you know, And so I think that was kind of overall helped me because it's like the shame was leaving, you know, the shame of what I had done or said or secrets that I, you know, that was starting to fade. And then all I could see was like this sheer transformation of my entire life that I hadn't told anybody about, (laughs) you know? Wow. And so that really helped me to, to feel more comfortable and like, empowered to say no somebody needs to hear that this is possible at your age with your skin color as a woman someone needs to know this is possible wow I love that Mm -hmm. so kind of like just to you know wrap up tell us where you are now and how you're kind of using your experience in your everyday life so now I am in um, private practice here based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, for a couple of years, I worked at some treatment centers um, for substance abuse and, you know, did some work there, but I really felt like I wanted to branch out into my own vision for um, what blending this idea of a mental and physical health together, what that can look like. And it's really kind of outside of the typical Mm -hmm. structures of, you know, mental health and even the treatment centers, they add a little bit of, you know, holistic services, but I really just felt like I wanted to, you know, really see what this could be to be at that intersection and, and have some dialogue around how movement and um, being active and how mind and body are just constantly in communication and constantly feeding off of each other. And, um, and plus it was such an, 
um, important part of my life, my recovery journey, everything, you know, and so I wanted to find a way to to bridge that gap. And so now what I do in my work at, in private practice and I also have coaching programs that I do is help women with the same with the same goals. Not all of them are so sober women, but for the most part, um, there's been an identified vice or cycle of behavior or habit or something that they are really feeling um, trapped by, or you know what I mean, controlled by, and they want to be free of it. And that's wow. the, the essence of what I do, whether that be emotional eating, whether that be, you know, a substance issue, smoking, like something that they're wanting to kind of work through exercise, exercise issues, you know, and like, I need to break out of this cycle. I need to let this go mm. or, or have a different relationship with this person, place, or thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and I want to get back to loving me. I want to get back to my self-care. I want to get back to, you know, not feeling like I'm just getting by just to get by mm. that I'm living like a fruitful life. Um, and so those are the types of women that I help, whether that be more so on the therapy side, um, where we're doing a lot of processing and understanding their family genogram and generational patterns and all that other stuff. Or if it's on the coaching side where we're making a specific plan for how this can, you know, how they can move forward with some of those tangible, wow. tangible things. So I love yeah. it. I love it. I love yeah. how you're able to use that um, and offer it in different ways based on whatever they need. And I like that you're just, you're doing it not necessarily around alcohol, but some sort of advice. Mm -hmm. So um, what would you like to leave with our audience today? What would you like them to know? If wow. Um, I'm like, whoa. Um, I would just say that uh, I was just talking about this today, that it's worth it to work through it. And I know that on the front end of change, it's so hard to get that, that momentum and that um, motivation, you know, just to try, just to try to do something different. And it can seem like staying the same is, is comfortable or at least familiar. And so um, for me, it's worth it to work through it, that you're worth it. The progress you're gonna experience is worth it. The um, gifts and the fruits and the promises that are gonna come on the other side are worth it. Even if you can't see it, all you have to do is just take that one step. You know what I mean? And for me, that was deciding that alcohol is no longer serving me. I've got to give it up. Everything else that's happened has just come from working through that and being clear on that. And, you know, and so I would say it's worth it. It's mm -hmm. worth it to work through whatever you're going through and don't give up. I love that. I love yeah. that. So where can um, the audience shower you with love? How can they connect with you? Uh, so my website, b3bykristen.com. Um, that's my website. It's really a hub for everything that I have going on, whether that be therapy services, coaching programs, information, um, guides, resources, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, of course on Instagram, I love the Instagram. Um, <laughs> it's just my name, Kristen Beamster on Instagram. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com backslash B3 by Kristen. And um, right now, actually, I'm heading into a season where I'm launching, um, relaunching um, my wellness program. It's called Be Well. And it's really helping women just with what everything I just said about um, working through some, some habits and some cycles that are keeping you stuck 
and figuring out healthier ways to cope with that and then rebuilding your lifestyle around something that you can sustain. And so that's Be Well, and I'll be um, open for enrollment on that on um, in March and going into April. I'm not sure when this will air, but that will definitely be um, feasible and, and, and something that people can look forward to um, regardless of when they hear this, it'll probably be open by then. Yeah, great. That's what I love yeah. about podcasts. They're evergreen, but we'll put all that information in the show notes and it'll definitely be out time. They'll be out, be able to okay. listen to all of that stuff. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. If you connected with what you just heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You can stay connected by following the Instagram, Bianca Keisha, spelled Keisha, K-E-S-H-A, or visiting the website, AuthenticWednesday.com. Remember, authenticity is a journey, not a destination. Thank you.